Thanks for downloading today's episode. Before the show starts, I wanted to take a moment to ask you to rate and comment on the podcast in iTunes or SoundCloud. The more people who rate us, the bigger we can grow. You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell, and in this episode, number 67, we're going to talk about that seemingly elusive, mythical, perhaps even fictional concept that we all wrestle with, work-life balance. My guest in this episode is author, speaker, and coach, John Drury, and he thinks that chasing work-life balance is not only impossible, but potentially very harmful. In the conversation you're about to hear, we reflect on the busy world we've created for ourselves. We talk about the damaging traps that so many of us fall into by trying to be everything to everyone. And of course, we talk about the alternatives. John shares with us his concept of integration, the pressure it can take off you, the fulfillment it can bring to your life and the life of the people you care about. I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Drury. John Drury, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you, David. John, I'll tell you something I hear a lot. I bet you hear a version of this as well. I hear people tell me that I'm so busy at work, things at home are crazy, I don't catch up with my friends, I feel like I'm letting everyone in my life down. Do you hear a version of that? Yes, we have various versions of that and I've lived versions of that myself and it's, it worries me. Because I know what it, I've got a whole story that, uh, to tell that, that's got me involved in thinking about this whole concept of integrating work and life more effectively. And, and I know my story uh, was a very painful one. And I, uh, I want to help people avoid the pain because I, I see all too many people busily going about their life and not realizing some of the consequences of their decisions. I'll get you to tell me your story just in a minute yep. to tell us and, and me and the listeners how you got into this, this area where you've, you've written a, bit, a book all about integrating the different parts of your life. But firstly, I just want to reflect on that. It's not even a, a, a fictional statement that I made. I, I hear people say it all the time. In the last week, two different people from different parts of my life mm. have said almost exactly those words. And just to reflect on that for a minute and think about how that what sort of position that puts people in in their life? Not only are they anxiously moving from one activity to another, rushing here and there and everywhere, not only are they living that stress, on top of that, is there even more serious layer that despite their efforts, despite their exhaustion and their constant anxiety, they feel like they're letting everyone down anyway. Yes. They feel like they're leaving work too soon, 
to pick up the kids from childcare. Mm. So therefore, they're not a good worker. They feel like they're leaving the kids at childcare too many days a week or for too long a day. Mm. So they're letting their kids down as well. They feel like that when they're getting home, they are not paying attention to the kids because they've got things to do or emails to finish off. And you get the picture. And it doesn't just have to be about kids and childcare. It can be about all different parts of your life. What are we doing to ourselves that where where so many of us are living that way, John? It's it's just describing it makes me anxious. Yes. That rushing from one thing to another, and despite your effort, mm. you feel like you're letting everyone down anyway. What are we doing to ourselves? Well, I think we're doing something quite serious to ourselves long term, and it's crept up on us. So I, I think since the nineties, we've had email. And the internet and the digital age swept in upon us and, and it was fun initially. And then 2007, the, the iPhone 4 came out and 2008, the first Android. So we've had, we've had a computer in our pocket for the last 10 years mm. that was more, more powerful yeah. than the one that sent the first man to the moon. We carry it around in our pockets and we're so connected to everything. So we've got emails, we've got communication 24 seven. In a global economy, many people are working in, so they need to check. And then the more you check, the more you want to check because it's kind of addictive. So we never let down from work. So it's it's crept in and taken over. So the flexibility of work has pushed in and taken over a lot of our home life. But at the same time, in the last 20 years, our aspirations for our personal lives have never been greater. So we've, we want to have everything for ourselves and our children and we've got two things combining that we're not coping very well with. And a lot of people are hitting their limits. It's interesting that Tal Insurance, just in their 2015 report, the income protection claims related to psychological injuries, which is stress, anxiety, and depression mostly, is now equal to accidents and injury and double the numbers for cancer and other serious illnesses. Wow. So they've had to put the premiums up for income protection insurance because people are now falling off and struggling and anxiety issues are starting to eat away to the point where people can't work. You've described the perfect storm there, that concept, and we've talked about it before on this show, the idea that for 10 years now, you and I and everyone else have been walking around with a computer in our pocket, a computer that is infinitely more powerful than the one that sent Neil Armstrong to the moon. Yes. And at the same time, and it's probably not mutually exclusive, a, a lot of these things are probably connected. At the same time, we have these ambitions for our life, not just our work, but our life in general, the things that we want to do, the things we want to participate, the experiences we want to give our kids, the type of relationships we want to have, the restaurants we want to visit, the movies we want to see, everything that we want to do in our life, it's the perfect storm. We have created this life where enough is never enough. And there are still just 24 hours in the day like there were for my parents, like there were for their parents before them. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you get it and you describe it very well. So that uh, is, is just causing such a huge challenge. And uh, there's a fear of missing out. The FOMO thing is very, very real. And this uh, sense of not wanting to cut off options. So we tend to want to keep our options wide open so we don't lock into things and we don't want to commit. Uh, so we'll, uh, we commit to things at the last minute, like going to this event or that party or this getting an RSVP answered for a, an event you're putting on now is incredibly difficult. 
You've got to work really, really hard at it. People want to leave it to the last minute. Yeah, they might get a better, better offer. Unfortunately, I think that's true. <laughs> so I don't. We're wanting to keep things open because we're a little bit fearful we're going to miss out. And the danger with all that is we're losing ourselves in the midst of trying to find and experience so much, like experience the ultimate in life. That's the extreme of it. That's why. You know, to start dealing with this, you've got to actually come right back to not just managing time, not just organizing yourself better. You know, those kind of things are not the core of it. The core of it is actually our own self-respect. We're losing our own sense of self and our sense of purpose and what we're really here for. And because we're struggling to find that, therefore we're open to almost anything and, and too many things. If you're open to too many things, you're actually not committed to anything. Yeah. That's exactly right. Hey, you said a lot of things there that we're going to get to. That idea of self-respect, it's a, a powerful concept in your book. Uh, there's a couple of things before we move forward, and, and we're in diagnosis mode. I, I know we're probably saying a lot of things that, that the listeners already know, but it's nice for us to all share that and acknowledge that we're feeling the same pressures and we're, we're observing the same things in our friends and, and our families' lives. But hey, this concept that the phone is addictive, and I've had people on the show before have talked me through the science of it. I don't have a mind for that, so I can't remember the names of the things. <laughs> I think we get endorphins when uh, Dop- when, when we get them. Dopamine, that's the one thing. Dopamine is, is it's the same hit you get when gamblers win. They're looking for a dopamine hit. When you get a like or, a, or a, an email, for some it's the email alert or whatever it is, and it's actually addictive. Uh, something about us wants that. If you can't turn your email alerts off and you've got them pinging or coming up on your screen, it distracts you and it actually is, does, there's a little chemical release in your brain. And if you're doing deep work while that comes up, it takes you up to 20 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before that interruption. So we're, we're trying to multitask and do so many things and we're, we're doing things more and more poorly, uh, less and less well. And so that that actually productivity in Australia has has gone down. We peaked about the year two thousand, and productivity we've gone backwards big time going because of a lot now. of these kind of issues. But you know, as you describe that, and and you're not the first to talk to me about that dopamine and the addictive nature of it. But you know, gambling's addictive. Eating rubbish food and getting fat is addictive. Sitting on my couch and watching too much TV is addictive. All of these things that are bad for us are addictive. And as humans, we continue to make these same choices. You know, you and I know the average Aussie doesn't get enough sleep. The average Aussie watches more TV than they should. The average Aussie doesn't go to bed as early as they think they want to when they sit down to start watching TV at seven o'clock at night. The average Aussie eats, eats way too much junk food. And here's just another trap that the average Aussie has fallen into, staying on their phones. Now, I, I don't want to go close to being a preacher on this but I, I've talked about this before. I'm very proud of it. And my wife does the same thing. Uh, when we go to, say, watch our boys have their swimming lessons or when we go and watch our oldest boy play soccer, he does little kickers, we are very diligent to not be on our phone. And even when we're at the park watching them climb, and it's just a habit, like not eating junk food, like going to bed early enough so I can get up and exercise, like everything else that you have a choice about in our lives and and the phone thing, the concept that this is adding anxiety to our life because we're always connected to our job and the, the lines are blurred. And even when we go home, we could just answer that email or just do this or just do that. It's just another thing that we can either be weak about or we can be strong about. 
And I hate to hear it used as an excuse because it's, as I say, it's, it's just another thing that we, we make a choice around. Yeah, I'd agree. And learning to set boundaries is actually the, the core of, of what uh, we all need to do. And we're not good at setting boundaries that we stick to. And again, that to me comes back to self-respect. Like Brené Brown is a fabulous speaker and author, and she talks about self-respect. And the core of it is respecting enough yourself enough to actually set boundaries around your world, around what is important to you so that you protect it and you, you can focus on it and, and live it. And it's got to start there. So, for example, one of the things I try and do is have a technology-free day every week. So my Sunday, you know, go out without the phone and so or be at home trying – I might check it late, later in the day because so <laughs> often late Sunday afternoon I'm preparing my week, uh, my work week, so I'll, I'll quickly check a few things. But uh, to have the whole day without it, and when I first started to do that, I was surprised how hard it was. Yes, <laughs> how many times you, you reach towards your pocket? Yeah, it yeah, felt a bit I felt a bit odd. I felt a bit naked going out without my phone. It's like, what if there's an emergency? Well, I think there's very rarely emergency there's yes. but we we feel disconnected from life if we don't have the thing with us kind of funny. and that's a, a choice that we make and if we if we sleepwalk into this issue we'll fall into that trap the same way if we sleepwalk into into our daily routine we we fall into those other traps that I just described if we sleepwalk into this you will sit at the park on your phone and not watch your kid play you will not watch your kid grow up and I find that really sad because if you stopped and had a conversation, if I went to people in the park who are sitting on the phone while their kid is playing and I said to them, hey, is that more important than watching your kid grow up? I would look like a, a fool. I would look like an, a, you know, an awful person because you don't do that sort of stuff. But if you were able to engage with someone on that level and you got them to actually think about it, they say, no, whatever I'm reading here is nowhere near as important as watching my kid grow up. But we kid ourselves into thinking it's just now. But if it's just now every time, then you, your kid is going to be growing up in a blur, out of focus around the, the frame of your iPhone. That's quite possible. That's a tragedy. You, you hey, are quite passionate before, about that one, aren't you? <laughs> I, I, am, I really am. I really am. Hey, um, John, before we move off this one and start talking about what we can do about it, I find it interesting to think, have you, if, if we're in the 70s or the 80s and you told me by 2010, you're going to be able to check, you know, you know send messages to multiple people in a, in a touch of a button, you're going to be able to do your shopping online you know, with something, a gadget out of your pocket, you're going to be able to do your banking, you're going to be able to have a conversation with someone like you and I right now where I can see your face as you're talking to me from another part of the country, all of these things. If you hadn't described them to me in the 70s and the 80s, I would have thought, wow, what a great life we've got. Yes. <laughs> and how much luxurious leisure time are we going to have in this faraway time that you're describing? Because all of those things will make work so much better. Yet it's not like that. What has happened? Is this our slave to capitalism? Is it our political masters? Is it just human nature that doesn't allow ourselves to use these tools to relax a little bit? Why is it with all of this productivity power at our fingertips, are you and I working far harder than our grandparents did? Ah, well, we've, we may be working longer. They probably work physically harder. But, That's um, a good point. Yes. I think because we struggle with purpose. It come, to me, it comes back to that. Quite a number of, uh, of executives that I, I have uh, worked with as a mentor 
uh, very successful, making a lot of money more than they need, and yet bored because their work is not really connected to purpose. It's just connected to the next deal. And a lot of a lot of small business owners that I work with, again, striving for something. And once you get to a level of success, you know, getting there is is a big thing, and that that takes a lot of effort for to get a business going. Once it's going well, then all kinds of fears, all kinds of issues come in. We get driven on the inside, and when is enough enough? I mean, some people can manage that. Other people struggle with that. And a lot of the work that I do is with people I call high achievers, people who are quite passionate. They're not driven in the sense of just a slave to work. They actually love their work. They're excited about new ideas and new opportunities and they don't want to be working less in some ways, but they know that it's actually starting to not be good for them when it's affecting their health or their marriage or their, ch- their parenting or that, you know, they have no, don't have time for friends or to see their aging parents. So it's, you know, it's not a bad thing to love your work. I, I wish more people did. Have great sense of purpose, a great sense that, wow, this is fantastic. I love what I do and I, I want to make a mark. I want to be successful. That's a great thing. And I, I don't ever try and rein that in with people. I always want to encourage that, but I always say, well, how are you going to manage what else is important in your life? Because if you want to keep, if you want to stay insecure and keep all your options open while you go for something passionately that becomes large, it's just physically not possible. You can't have it all now. You might over a lifetime, but you can't have it all at once or you're going to kill yourself <laughs> or kill something, kill your marriage. So it's a matter of saying, okay, what is in your world? And I help people map their world. I remember one one uh, couple I, I work with, they had an internet-based business doing great things. They're making about half a million dollars from home every wow, every nice. year. Doing very well, lovely people, five five uh, great kids all at school. And But they, they got me in when, when she, the wife uh, had some health issues and she realized, hey, this has spun a bit out of control. So I sat down with them and uh, we, we talked it through and looked at some of the things that they're trying to do and business-wise, lots of success. But I, uh, she was also working a part-time job that she couldn't let go of because she had a, a bit of an addiction to it, a bit of fear that maybe the, the business might go downhill one day. She was doing a master's degree. He had a property development going on the side, five kids at school, one of them with special needs. So, and then someone's, no wonder her health was starting to come in. <laughs> yeah, and her health was the was the flashing light that she went, whoa, hang on. So we talked about it. I said, well, what, what would be an indicator that you're starting to get things back under control? I said, well, if we could see the dining room table, that would be a really good indicator that we're starting to get some water back in this. <laughs> it's that they, the dining room table had become the dumping ground for the washing and the stuff as they walked in and out of the house, and they hadn't sat down and had a meal together for nearly two years. It's their barometer, hey? Well, that became the barometer that we used, and within a, within about six weeks, they had the dining room table clear. They'd hired someone to help them with things they weren't good at in their business. They got on with what they were good at and started to build a family life and integrate work and life much, much better. If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll get things moving. I'm talking to John Drury about integrating all the different parts of our lives. And John, I'm going to ask you about this work-life balance myth in a minute. 
But first of all, I'd love to hear your story. I actually, I know your story because I've read all about it. But tell us your story and how you got into this, how this became a passion of yours, this, this idea of integrating the parts of our life. Well, I've looking back, I, I'm someone that I probably would call myself a high achiever now. At the time, I never would have. But you don't realize as you're growing up that you're doing well and you want to do well at everything you do. But uh, I'd done numbers of things in music with albums and records, you know, gospel music, so it wasn't top 40 stuff. But we, we spent a year doing that full time and, and travelled all over the nation and played in all the large auditoriums across Australia. I've done a whole range of other things, which you know, make the story a bit shorter. But then uh, I, I'm a strong Christian and, and felt to go into ministry, so did some training for that and then... When it came to it that I to step out and to take on a church, actually ended up starting a church, not taking on an existing church. So just with a group of eight or ten people, and within a year we had a couple of hundred people, and and then it was a longer journey than I thought. But we're working very hard with people, serving people's needs, helping people get connected to purpose, which is a big part of what I still do in business, and working with young, particularly younger people. We grew the church and. Then eventually got properties and all of that. But over 15, I was doing this for nearly 20 years. Over that time, I was busily helping other people and less and less looking after myself and didn't realize it, did not realize it. So, and I had my marriage, loved my wife, got three beautiful daughters and now grandchildren as they're now older. But, uh, the marriage was something I neglected because I was working so hard outside the home and helping other people and felt it was for a good cause and expected support for that and had a lot of support, but neglected working on the marriage. And so the marriage became tense and difficult over a period of time, or we'd have seasons where it was difficult. And so rather than face that, I have to admit to my regret, I would work harder because it was I was getting more applause outside the home than in the home. And so looking back, I do a lot of things very differently. But I got to the point, David, where I couldn't relax. I got to, I took, when I took a day off, I didn't know what to do with it. But kind of helping other people find their way and lost my way and was kind of bored. But, you know, professionally doing the job, like I, I see a lot of business people now, very busy overcoming all kinds of hurdles, getting up the next day after they've had a setback the day before, pushing through all kinds of emotional pain and and issues and just doing it tough and learning that well, thinking, well, that's how it is, but not realizing the impact on themselves. So I, I made some very poor decisions that ended up meaning I had to I resigned the role as a pastor. We got to a thousand people and we're doing things all over the world um, in helping communities development stuff in Asia and other parts of the world. So it, every in every way it was successful looking on outwardly, but inwardly I'd lost my way. And my marriage didn't survive that whole experience. So uh, I ended up on my own, totally on my own, in a little flat and with no money, despite what people say, you don't make money as a pastor, <laughs> what I didn't, and uh, had to rethink how on earth did I get here? What happened? Wow. That is a powerful story, John. And unfortunately, I bet a lot of people listening would have related to all of that. You know, not maybe the past a bit, but the getting more applause off of the work that you're doing outside of the home. And, and even that language you used around having the seasons of tension 
in your marriage and, and, and making the decision at some level, subconsciously or consciously, to not work on that and instead to work more because that's what you had greater control over. That's where you were having perceivably some more success and it ended badly for you and, and that relationship. And, and do you see this now, John, the work that you're doing professionally as somewhat of a, a non-Christian ministry? Is that what it's all about for you? Well, there's a strong sense of purpose in it. I'm very happy to work with people of any faith or no faith because I just love seeing people release their potential within them as an individual or within their team or within their business. I can get excited when people have vision and a drive, I can get excited about helping them achieve that. But I guess it, it's it, to me it feels similar, but I'm certainly not preaching. I'm not. I'm still a Christian. I still go to church, but I, I think, hope my actions preach where I don't have to. I don't speak that much about about my faith. Although we have all kinds of conversations because I help people think about what their values are because I think that's very important. If you know what your values are and you're living against them, that's part of what undoes you on the inside. So I help people discover their values or if they don't know what they are already and then work out, okay, how do I align myself with my values and my work and my passion and all of that? And that's all part, for me, part of self-respect. It's hard to get away from this purpose thing, isn't it? It would be remiss of me not to give my own podcast a little bit of an advertisement here. My very last, most recent episode, in fact, John, I spoke with Rodney Howard and Nick Barnett about why purpose matters in our own lives as individuals, in our organizations and for our teams. Uh, really great conversation. They've they've wrote, written a nifty little book together and we had a great chat and, and we talked about the things that people fool themselves into thinking that is their purpose. And at an organization level, it is, um, it is making money for the shareholder or or not getting out of survival mode if you've started your own small business and, and you're making money and you're turning a profit, staying in that bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and just continuing to churn for survival. And on an individual level, we talked about the fact that it's almost as though the world is working against us when it comes to finding our own purpose. Because if we're not on top of it, if we're not thinking about it, we could just get caught up in a busy job and get caught in the rut of life and never give ourselves a moment to think about what is it that I really want to get out of this existence that I have, this one crack at human life that I've got. All right. Hey, let's move on. We're going to get very close to uh, to answering some of these questions. What do we do about all this? But that's next. Before we get there, tell me about work-life balance, John. It's a myth as far as you're concerned. Tell us, where did that myth come from? Has it ever been right or is it just no longer relevant or has it always been a myth and irrelevant? The history of the term, as far as I, I've researched it, it comes from the quest in the early 20th century for a shorter working week. You know, working weeks were, uh, were sort of anything up to 60 hours a week, working six days, 10 hours a week, uh, 10 hours a day. And it's come full circle. Yeah, so, yeah, we have. So there was a shorter working week uh, with the industrialization in the early 20th century, the, uh, the Henry Ford, you know, the father of industrialization with the, the uh, conveyor belt kind of systems of building cars and all of that. So he, he instituted a, a shorter week, a 48-hour week, I think it was, for his employees. And then legislation gradually started to catch up across the Western world. So it, this idea that there should be a time for people to have outside of work for their family and for their for life outside of work, that's where it came from. But I, I don't 
I don't think it's ever existed. It, it might have described a division of labour when women stayed at home and looked after the family and men went to work, but that, that might have been a work-life trade-off balance thing. But for passionate people who love what they do, who want to make a mark, who, who want to have an impact, who want to make a difference, be successful, and if you make a difference and, and want to be successful, then you'll usually make money. So for those people, watching the clock is not an issue. So, that, I mean, what they don't realise they've spent 12 hours doing something because they've been locked in and going for it. When they're off with their family at the beach and they're sitting there and they, they might get an idea for something for their work and suddenly the creativity, the juices get going and they, and they want to write a whole lot of things down and, and maybe work-life balance then becomes a guilt-producing thing saying, hang on, you're a workaholic. You're supposed to be having time off. What are you doing? And I think it's been used as a club to belt people who have – who are passionate about their career or about their, whatever it is they're building in their life or the, the thing that they're, they're doing. So I think it's just a myth that has never really worked for anybody, especially high achievers. The idea of having time to, time to live beyond your work, I think that's a good thing. But to me, integration is a far better term that you'd look at, okay, what is my work, which is a big slab of your life in terms of time spent, and maybe a big slab of your purpose because work is a big part of what gives us purpose. And if you're working in a job with no purpose, that's like a prison sentence and it doesn't have to be, certainly not in Australia. Anybody can find their way and educate themselves a bit and and find their way to a a better position that's more connected to, to who they really are if they want to. That's my view. So getting that sorted is the core of it. Uh, So then you know what you're doing and then say, well, what else is important? Is my health is important because that's kind of duh. If you don't have health, you can't work. My partner, my children or family or personal relationships, what else is important? Do I want to have involvement in community activity or sports or clubs or whatever it is? What's important in my world that, as well as work? And then how do, I, how do I make that fit? That's what I talk about in the book. So let's get to it. In the book that you have a three-point Venn diagram, essentially, where you talk about three really interesting or important components, not interesting, very interesting, but more important, components of our lives. And they're the things that tend to get out of whack if we're not doing this right. And and your concept of life integration is built around these three concepts. They're self-respect, self-care, and self-management. Can you talk us through those three main parts of our life? Yep. To me, those three elements are the core of self-leadership. The first person you and I have got to lead well is ourselves. Yeah, I I love that about your book, by the way, that concept of self-leadership. That's so simple, but uh, fantastic. I loved it. Well, if you can't lead yourself well, you kind of forfeit your right to lead others. But- (laughs) Right. But how many how many try though, John? We, <laughs> we know that. That's why you know is it seventy percent of people are disengaged at work, and then they they leave because they're upset with or have a relationship conflict with a, a manager or a boss because people don't lead themselves well usually. And most of my work, the issue is not the the staff that are unruly or not fitting in. It's the it's the leader not knowing how to lead. But that's another part of the story. Coming back, self leadership to me. Starts with self-respect. A lot of people focus on, you know, what Stephen Covey taught us in the eighties that we've got to discern between the urgent and the important, and manage ourselves better, and have a sense of the compass and where we're 
where we're headed. And that's all really important. But to me, that self-management, it's actually the third circle in the Venn and the least important of the three. If you get the other two sorted, that one, that one starts to sort itself. It starts with self-respect. And that is, we've got to respect ourselves enough to, to know what we really want in life, to know what our values are and be courageous enough to live them. And then to know what our strengths are and celebrate those and work with those and, and then be willing to look at and admit, yeah, I've got weaknesses too. And when you can accept your weaknesses and not try and cover them up or hide them or pretend they don't exist, but actually be, become secure enough, you say, yeah, I'm just not good at that. I need your help with that. It's actually very healthy. <laughs> yeah, it's what secure secure people can do. That people who are secure in who they are, they're they're more than comfortable with the things they're not good at because there are no they know there are things that they they are good at. And we'd be kidding ourselves if we thought we could all be good at stuff. And it's a great trait of people with high emotional intelligence that they're able to laugh at themselves because they, we all know they know they make mistakes. We all know we make mistakes, but people who have a high degree of self-respect, a, a high level of emotional intelligence, they're okay with that. They can laugh at themselves. So I, I really like that point. Hey, what's the difference between self-respect and self-esteem, John? Well, I've, I think that's a really good question. And it's interesting. There's there's a lot of data and books written and, and if you research self-esteem, there's a million things about it. Self-respect is a lot less. And to me, as I've researched this, this subject, self-esteem is what others give you. You get a praise or approval or you get encouragement. Applause. Applause from outside yourself. That's what I was getting in the church role. I was getting My self-esteem was being fed by all that and I enjoyed that. It's something we enjoy. We love it. But self-respect is the gift you have to give yourself. Yeah. Wow. Great. No one else can give you self-respect. So it's learning. And uh, you just, so I'm sorry, John, you described that so beautifully in your book and it just popped into my head. That must be one of those things that say professional sportsmen really struggle with when they retire because their self-esteem is being fueled every time they run onto the field and do something amazing and get a cheer from the crowd They've probably, in some ways, some of them have neglected their self-respect because they have been pumped up with this self-esteem all of their career. But once they retire, that is taken away from them. And the challenge then is to, to use a cliche, to love themselves, to respect who they are rather than rely on the cheers of the crowd. So, so I'm sorry there, mate. I cut you off. That's all right. It very much is about becoming secure in knowing who you are and actually being comfortable in your own skin. And when you're secure then you can say no to stuff. Like if you're insecure and you can't turn off the email alert, you can't not answer the phone. Like if you're busy doing something and the phone rings or somebody knocks on your door at work, there's a lot of a lot of bosses have an open door and they or open plan office and they they're interrupted all the time because and they they're not secure enough to actually set boundaries and say right now in the next two hours I don't want to be interrupted. I've got this thing I've got to do, and so. If they did that and set the boundary around that, they wouldn't have to work back late and then get in trouble with their wife because a lot of people say to me, well, the only time I get peace is at 5.30 when everyone's gone and the phone stops ringing. That's when I get my work done. And I say, hang on, you're actually in charge of that. You're allowing that. Don't complain about that. That's actually your problem. I get some pushback, but eventually they'll agree with me. <laughs> so. You talked about two quite different things there. The two examples you gave, the professional one where you're a leader at your work and you, and you don't have that confidence 
you were describing to say, hey, look, everybody, I, I can't wait to talk to you. I've been looking forward to talking to you. I want to talk to you, but right now I've got to get this job done. I'm in the middle of it. I'm in the flow. Just uh, give me an hour. That's confidence and and understanding your place in the workplace, uh, in your organization. But the other one is self-esteem, the one that you talked about. If you cannot ignore your phone, if you post something on Facebook, you've got to check it every five minutes to see how many likes you've got. That's a lack of self-esteem, isn't it? You're needing that appraisal of people. You want people to smile at you electronically. Yes, it's all related to that. So the more, the more secure you can get in knowing what you want, knowing what your values are, learning to put boundaries around your time and set mar- – I talk about putting margins in your day so not every minute's absolutely uh, dominated by everyone else. The other thing is don't check your emails until about 11 o'clock unless it's a business that you have, you're have you getting your work through the emails. You might check it early but then turn them off for two or three hours and get your main things you want to get done done and then put them on again because otherwise you're letting other people's agendas set your day, which is a it's a way to you end up reactive rather than actually proactive. And so many people get caught in that, and that's the world spin, the whirlwind or the, the spin that we end up in in our life that we're talking about right at the beginning. And you mentioned Covey before. He describes that kind of interruption as something that is urgent because it's blaring at you through your computer or it's your phone ringing, but it's not important because it's not your thing. It's someone contacting you. So to lose time to that and not be able to manage that correctly in your day and, and be productive about it is a real sin and we can lose so much time and, and flow and creativity to that. All right. Well, that's self-respect, John. Love it. And I love the way that we've differentiated self-respect from self-esteem. What about the second part of this self-leadership, which you describe as self-care? Yes. Well, if you, if you respect yourself enough, then you'll look after yourself. So it's, it's a bit like the, uh, you know, on the airplane, if they say, if, you, if you're traveling as a parent or a carer for somebody and the oxygen masks fall, I've never seen them fall in about 5,000 flights, but but uh, I don't want to see them fall. <laughs> but uh, they say to you, make sure you put, put your own mask on first before you put the mask on whoever you're with. Because if you go down, then they're, they're really lost. So it's this concept of actually respecting yourself enough to look after yourself. So I say to people, do you respect yourself enough to keep appointments with yourself? So if you put in your schedule like half an hour at lunchtime, I'm going to go for a walk. Or I'm I'm going to the gym at four thirty this afternoon, or whatever it is. But when things that you do for yourself, do you actually keep those appointments, or are they the first to go? And they we tend to prioritize but, others. Yes. So to me, self respect leads very naturally to self care, and and it's actually the core for inner health. If you've got self respect and you, you're able to look after yourself like that, it's not selfish. Some people might think it is. But I have no problem at all saying to somebody, listen, I can't see you tomorrow at 10. I'm busy. How about we meet at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon? They don't know that at 10 o'clock in the morning I'm actually playing golf. That's none of their business. But it's, that's what I have chosen to do. I work hard, but, but I might play golf or, or might do something that's I might go for a massage or something. That's an appointment in my schedule, so uh, I'm going to do it. And that's part of looking after yourself because you know yourself well enough to understand that that's an important part of your life. That is. And you know, working for myself, I, I can I have a lot of control over that. But even when you work f- as an employee, it's amazing how much if you planned and work ahead, 
then the, I think the most planned person always wins. You can put your holidays in before anybody else. You'll nearly always get them. <laughs> and you, you can plan for That's a- That's not ru- me, by the way. Well, the rest of the day off or whatever else. You can organize it. So, you know, my wife and I, we've worked on trying to understand our natural life rhythms. I, I call it rhythm of life. So basically, I can work about five weeks pretty being busy for five weeks in a row, just having the Sunday off. And I know that by the end of that, I, I need a long weekend. My wife actually works, she works probably harder in, in the flow of a week. She can get so much done in a day. She's a very, very productive lady, runs her own business as well. So she, she uh, needs a break or a long weekend every four weeks. So we've synced our rhythm of life. So every four weeks, we have a long weekend. No. Nice. And every 12 weeks, we, we have a week off. Ah, oh, fantastic. So, That's great. Um, we we go, go somewhere, and then one of those quarters, uh, we, we take three weeks, usually at Christmas at the moment. So the end of March, the end of June, the end of September, we'll have a week off, and then three weeks at Christmas, and that's basically the rhythm of our world, and uh, a long weekend every month along the way. And it's amazing in Australia, it fits really, you can do it quite well with long weekends and Valentine's Day and Everything else, you can make it really work brilliantly. We get enough yeah. of them. <laughs> hey, I really like that, John, and I, and I love the language around it, the rhythm of life. How you said you picked up my passion before about parents not watching their kids grow up. This number two here, this self-care, this is another one that you you might want to turn down the volume of the of your phone right now as you're listening because I'm so passionate about this and, and you know, I – I work in with clients. I spend time in workplaces. I've had jobs, normal jobs, of course, over my career as well. And I know that this is one that people almost actively mock. If you were to leave your workplace to go and exercise or have a massage or do something good for you, it's frowned upon in, in most workplaces because we're all supposed to be fully committed to this work we're doing here as if this is the most important thing in our lives which of course is not, it's just a part of our lives. But the other side of that to me is if you're brave enough, if you know yourself well enough, if you have enough personal leadership to go and do those things during the day, because that's when they fit into your life, you are coming back to the office and giving that organization a great version of yourself rather than those people who drag out their day across nine hours and they slump around and they work at a at a slow pace and their mind's not switched on and they're negative because they don't give themselves those things in their life. They don't understand what they need, what makes them happy, what makes them feel whole and healthy and energetic and all of those things. You give me someone who works seven hours but knows who they are and is healthy and happy any day of the week over someone who drags their day out over nine and 10 hours, but is dragging the chain, is unhealthy, is unhappy, and doesn't know who they are. I know who I would take every time. Yes. Yep. I'm with you on that. And uh, I've got, I'm on a bit of a mission at the moment because uh, I think the trend is turning and you know, the companies have demanded flexibility of employees increasingly. And this, the technology has crept into our lives so that you know, we're on 24-7 and even on holidays, people feel bad if they don't check their emails. So that's happened. But the flexibility the other way hasn't been as good, but I think it's starting to change. And I'm It's a maturity, of, isn't it? Oh, I think companies have to become flexible and they're going to get more out of their workers. And the war for talent, as they've talked about now for what, 10 or 20 years, 
to get really good people, and especially with Gen Y coming through, the number one on their list of things they want from a company is is what they call work-life balance. So even though I don't believe in it, but I know what they mean. And salary and remuneration is actually number five on the list of things that they want from a from a job. So they want good salary, but they actually want work-life balance more. So companies are going to have to become more flexible and you know work out what the non-negotiables are in their week or in the cycle of a month when everybody has to be there and on deck and then what else they can let go as long as people are getting their projects completed, getting work outcomes done and are available for collaborative projects. What does it matter if they're there at 7 a.m. or still there at 7 p.m.? And those stories that people tell about the, this incredible loyal employee, they were here till 9 o'clock last night finishing a project and then they're back again 7 a.m. this morning. Aren't they amazing? I actually think, why is that amazing? <laughs> yeah, I, I would question that person's ongoing employment if that's a habit in the way that they work, because that worries me about their life. Hey, uh, before we move on to the third one, John, I don't know how to word this. What do people tell themselves when the one part of their life is clearly in trauma? As some of them are visible. We can see it. If someone is overweight, for example, overweight to the point where they are actively unhealthy, if their marriage is breaking down, if they go days without seeing their kids, don't know their kids, don't have a relationship with their kids, don't have any friends or whatever that part of their life is that is visibly in trauma, what are they telling themselves to make them think it's okay to continue to, to neglect it? Well, I've, I don't know what everyone tells themselves, but I know for myself, it's only on reflection. In that 12 months where I was shattered after I resigned my role and, lost, and, and my marriage broke down, I was emotionally shattered. I, I worked a part-time job just to make ends meet because I didn't want any responsibility. I, I went to work, did my job, went home, walked out and didn't think about the job. And that's so unlike me, but for a year I needed that. And then I, I went to a psychologist and, and helped work through my issues and, and tried to understand myself and then started a whole personal growth journey doing some personal development courses and things. It's only over the next year or two that I really under, understood myself. I had no idea that I was so near the edge of a precipice. And I think that's the scariest part of this. Often we don't realize and we do what's safe. We do what's predictable. We do. <laughs> I've been to the Philippines back years ago when, when I was, uh, we were doing some mission work up there. And we were in a place in Manila where there's a whole village built on the garbage dump. And there's little kids running around. I mean, they had sores all up their legs because it was a, it was not a pleasant place, but they'd made a soccer ball out of, paper and cardboard and matted it together and they were playing soccer having a fantastic time on the garbage dump and i think human beings can get used to whatever they feel secure in and even if it's a garbage dump and some people's lives and some people's work situations and you described as a trauma we get used to stuff and we don't think it's going to happen to us but unfortunately there's a day where it does a stroke happens or a heart attack or a the partner leaves. Marriage breaker. Yeah. yeah. I, one, one of my clients knew that he had issues with his partner because he was been working nonstop. He put off hiring me to work as a mentor about 18 months before. Then he finally couldn't avoid it. And then, But two months in to us working together, he found out his wife had been having an affair for about three months and he'd started too late. He said, well, I'm addressing all the issues that you're complaining about. He says, I've been waiting for too long. And, and, he's, and she was gone. So we, we don't get it, and we're most blind to ourselves, unfortunately. 
And it keeps coming back in my mind as I listen to you talk because we don't have a strong connection to our purpose. Because if you had a strong connection to what mattered to you, you wouldn't continue to pour your time and energy in exclusively to stuff that doesn't and ignore the things that do. Wow, that you've told some stories that that make me sad and make me think all at the same time, John. Hey, uh, if you don't mind, can we shoot along to number three? We've talked about the first two of your three, which is self-respect, self-care, and the third is self-management strategies. Tell us about those. Well, self-management is its probably the best understood by everybody because this is where Stephen Covey started to help us think about this and lots of other people. And then now technology is, is really helpful. There's so many techniques and apps and, and ways of doing things to organize yourself and manage and, yourself. And so yeah. we've got all this on tap. But to me, if you don't deal with the security issue, it doesn't matter what technology you're using or what apps you've got, if you can't say no to somebody, you're not going to be organized. You, so to me, self-management is about knowing your priorities and being able to live them. Is that having self-control? Is that where the self-control comes in? It requires some discipline. All of this requires some discipline and, and a level of humility. We're all learning and growing and we get it wrong. And so you've got to rebuild self-respect when you stuff up. And that's, that's uh, something we don't give ourselves time for. We beat ourselves up or we just push it away and push on. But we need time to process some of that stuff and, and keep working on ourselves and looking after ourselves and then managing ourselves. So it depends on your personality. There's a whole lot of things that I help people with with self-management. If you're a very great people person, then you're probably not the best organized person in the world. So you need some help and some structure. Whereas if you're more a, a thinker and a, someone who works things through and plans, if that's naturally uh, your thing, then that's going to be easy for you. But for some people, it's not easy. So you just need to find the system that's going to work for you to organize yourself so that you can keep your eye on what are the what are the three things I've got to do today that take me where I want to go? Or what's even better, what's the one thing I've got to do today that takes me where I, that I need to go and make sure that thing gets done? So self-management is the, the search for systems or rules or processes or habits or rituals in my life that get me to where I want to go. And I know where I want to go because I understand my purpose. I, I have developed a healthy dose of self-respect and I get that I've got to care for myself. So I, I, I really like it. John, I'm going to have to wrap it up, mate. We have talked for quite a while and it's you've had me absolutely gripped. Oh, good. I, I've really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed your book and I've enjoyed our conversation just as much. John Jury, thank you very much for joining me here on the Team Guru Podcast. My pleasure, David. Thank you. And that was John Drury. John's passion about helping people find a way to integrate each part of their lives rather than wasting their time searching for the damaging and elusive concept of work-life balance is clearly genuine and it's clearly personal. So many of us, you, me, people we care about, suffer from the stress that comes with juggling too many balls of overcommitting in our lives, rushing and worrying, and still feeling as though we're letting everyone down. John spells it out clearly and effectively. Self-respect, self-care, self-management. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with John on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast, 
you'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.